All right, we're going to get started this morning. Thank you all for coming in. Um, it's amazing how you can just pray people in the door, so fantastic. Eventually, if we get enough people, we'll fill the front row. I think that's how it works. Um, this is not like um, Southwest where they start at the front and move backwards. This is a nice, good adult Sunday school class where we start at the back and move forwards, and that's all good. Um, we're going to be, before we jump into... Um, uh, chapter 2 or lesson 2 this morning, uh, which is going to be the parents' goal. Um, let's just do a quick review of lesson 1, uh, parents' priorities. And before we do that, just a quick, I, I don't want a show of hands, but maybe uh, a volunteer to say, hey, I went through the homework this past week. I, my spouse and I talked about this question or that question, and this is what we learned about it. So anyone want to share maybe something that they learned over the past week of either trying to implement or think about or pray about the parenting uh, priorities or something from the homework. Volunteer. You know, sometimes uh, I think I can look at that with a real hard line. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> lose, lose the movement of when various things happen that they shift. But in the end, it's, if it is the priority, hmm. it's the goal. Yeah. Yeah, so not only understanding what our priorities are, but understanding what our priorities are in relationship to one another, right? Um, That's very important. Anything else? Thanks for sharing, Preston. You know, I think one of the things that we'll talk about more as we move through this series, but just want to remind and encourage each one of you in that my wife Angela was very kind to remind me of this morning is that one of the benefits of homework, see I'm an engineer by trade, right? And so I think of homework as an opportunity to solve a problem, right? Now the problem is, is sometimes the problem I'm trying to solve is the wrong problem. And what Angela reminded me of this morning is that one of the, they're singing, that's awesome. Um, I'm just making sure I wasn't hearing things or if the Lord was calling us home. Um, There's two ways to look at the homework. One of the ways to look at the homework is like, I'm going to go through these questions, and every time I get to a question, I'm going to solve a problem. You know, Number one, please read Appendix 2, Suggestions for Using Homework. Cool, did that one, check. Number two, reread the lesson. Number five, review your roles as husband and wife. Number seven, what does it mean to be stewards and disciples? And you can come up with a very good academic answer to each of these questions. But that's one way that you could use this. One of the things it says, it says, discuss how your previous discipling relationships relate to your parenting. That was question six from our homework. Now, you might think of that as like, cool, I can answer that in a very academic context. But what Angela reminded me of this morning, and I want to remind you of as well, is that one of the great benefits of homework is that we actually talk about our parenting with our spouse. And that might seem like obvious, but Even for individuals that have been raised in a Christian family, sometimes we just fall backwards into parenting. We don't actually talk about what we're going to do. We just get there, and we somehow find ourselves in the midst of a parenting situation, and we haven't thought about it, and we haven't talked about it. And so what happens is one parent or another responds to a situation in a way that was unexpected to the other parent. Maybe not necessarily wrong or egregious in any way, but we just haven't talked about it. And so I challenge you, as you think about the homework, I think one of the greatest benefits that you will receive from it is just as husband and wife saying, like, what do we think about this? How do we think about discipling our children? How do we think about spending time together? How do we think about spending time with them? What does that look like? And it doesn't mean that you're trying to necessarily get to a right or wrong answer, but it means that as husband and wife, you're trying to be unified in the priorities and the goals that you're establishing for your family. 
And that's going to become really important. And I'm going to reiterate that one more time in just a second. So the parenting priorities were this, a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. First and foremost, we have to remind ourselves that if you are here today and you have not given your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will learn tips and tricks about how to be better parents, potentially throughout this series. But you will not have the wisdom and the power to be able to execute on it the way that God has designed it because he has said in 1 Corinthians 1, Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God. In Christ is the wisdom and the power that we need to be the kind of parents that God has called us to be as husbands, as wives, as fathers and mothers. So first and foremost, and Preston, you just you know, reminded us of this, this priority is important. First and foremost it is a submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ in our life. This order is important. Our first priority is not to our children. Our first priority is to our Savior. Because when our first priority is to our Savior, then we will relate to our children in literally the best way possible. Because we will relate to them in the way in which God the Creator has designed us to. And so that's so fundamentally important. Secondly, and I'm not sure if I'm smart enough. There we go. Um, a commitment to our spouse. Um, and I'm going to pause here for just one moment. We alluded to this just a second. I think there's a couple of risks when we do a series like this. And the first risk is that we like learn something new and we're like, sweet. And we go home and we're like, kids, there's a new sheriff in town. Let's go. Like, I learned something new at this parenting class. Saddle up. It's going to be a fun ride, right? That's risk number one is that we run out of here and we have a potential to exasperate our children because like they woke up one day and this was the way it was and they woke up another day and this is the way it was. And the cool thing is that unless they are in like abject rebellion and sin against God, there's probably a lot of things that we do in our parenting that are just issues of conscience. How do we raise our children according to biblical principles, but they're not necessarily like sin versus righteousness type things. And so as we're making those changes through our home, we do those in just a disciplined, steady, progressive fashion. So uh, that's risk number one. Risk number two, um, and I think this is even a graver risk, is that one or the other of the spouses, one or the other of the parents has a stronger or maybe I should say a different disposition on how we go about parenting and then we run back into our home and we have parent number one being like guess what kids this is what's going on and parent number two sitting in the corner going like whoa what's happening and I think that's another reason why we need our homework and another reason why these parenting priorities are important is first off it's a commitment to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to be submitted to his word to his care as the creator and the designer of our families. And then secondly, to our spouse to say like, hey, I'm going to be unified with you. I'm going to work in concert with you. We're going to talk about these things together. We're going to plan these things together so that as one unit, as, as a family, as a husband and wife wanting to disciple our children for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, we're going to do that together. That's so important. Um, and there's been times when I'm sure I've said things out loud and Angela's like, whew, I don't know if I'd have said that. And she's like, but I'm going to be patient and maybe we'll talk about later. And there's times she's said things out loud. And I'm like, whew, that's pretty spicy there, babe. Um, and, but my job is to, you know, and so, but if we haven't talked about those beforehand, then those conflicts can become even more interesting. Even if you have talked about them, you're going to find those conflicts, right? Because you're just going to be dealing with your kids in the, the speed of the moment, um, trying to just act towards them and just the wisdom and the grace that God allows. But if you haven't had those conversations, it makes it more challenging. So just, just be thoughtful about that, right? Um, uh, secondly, or thirdly, our commitment to our family, right? Our commitment to uh, raising uh, our family, um, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's the goal, right? You know, uh, I'm a firm believer that, um, and I don't have a chapter and verse for this one, but the primary way in which we take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the next generation is through the family. 
And so that means that a commitment to the family is key because that is, you know, Deuteronomy 6 and others. That's how we communicate who God is and how he's created us and how we relate to him in this world through the word, through the family. So that's commitment number three. That's last week. And then fourthly, a commitment to others. Um, and those are our prior and team priorities from last week. So this morning, we're going to jump in to the goal of parenting. And before we do that, I'm going to ask a simple question, and that is this. What are some of the goals that you as parents have, or some hypothetical parent that lives next to you in the neighborhood, or you see at your sports team, or what else? What kind of, what are some goals that parents have in general? This is a test of the lividity of the people that are in the audience. Are you all alive? They better behave well. That's a goal. They better behave well. Competent adults, yeah, okay. Successful career, career. yeah. None of us have goals for our kids that have failed careers, right? Like, that's just the thing. We just don't do that, yeah. What else? Their character. character. Christ-like character. Cool. Anything else? What are other goals? To be independent. To be independent. At some point, you want to, like, Kick him out of the house, right? You just want to be like, poof. Have good, relationships good relationships with each other. Great goal. What else? Salvation. Salvation. They would love God with all their heart, mind, and soul. Yeah, there's a lot of goals that we can have as parents, and some of them, kind of like our priorities earlier, some of those goals are going to be in conflict. By the way, no one here like said like a terrible goal, right? Like no one's like, someone's like, I don't want that goal for my kids, right? Like they're all good goals, but they all roll up into really, um, you know, one, one primary goal, and that is, uh, we see this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. It says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Ultimately, that is what God has created us for. We go all the way back to Genesis. God created us in his image that we might reflect that back to himself in the way that we live on this earth. And as parents, that is our job to demonstrate to our children that we live for the glory of God and we live to demonstrate that in the way that we uh, live in our, as parents and in the family. Now, we see that God has given us principles in the Bible and through the Holy Spirit's power to enable Christian parents to meet the primary goal for all believers in regard to every endeavor of life all to the glory of God. That is our primary goal. Now that's going to filter out into all of these, what we might call secondary goals, which means that in every area of our life, we're trying to bring glory to God. That means even in our parenting, and even as we're trying to raise them to be competent citizens, even as we're trying to make them be independent. Um, We'll actually talk about that in a little bit. And even as we're saying like, hey, we want them to relate to one another in Christ-like love. That is a goal that foundationally pours out of seeking everything to the glory of God. Second Peter 1 um, also says that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we're going to see that in his great and precious promises, in his word, God has given us what we need, not only to glorify him, but also to parent our children and to raise them in such a way that they can go off and glorify him through every aspect of their lives. In your notes, there's this big, bold statement um, on page, we're on page seven for those that are following along. We'll see if I can actually follow along with you as well. That's my goal. Uh, page seven, it says, everything Christian parents need to know to raise their children in a godly manner is found in the Bible. Second Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God 
and it equips us for every good work, including the work of parenting, the good work of parenting. You have a work from God as a parent. It is a good work that he calls us to do, and his word declares he has equipped us for that. Now, this may seem odd to you if you've lived on this earth in any length of time, because in 2009, it was written, according to George Barna, there have been approximately 70, 75,000 books on parenting published in the past decade. It was written by Tim Challies in 2009. Because I was bored, I went to Amazon.com, that famous online retailer. They sell things in paperback still. They have over 60,000 titles in their parenting category. Now, they have some interesting titles. I'm going to read some of them to you. They have Bringing Up Bebe, One American Mother Discovers the Wisdom of French Parenting. I don't know what the French got going on, but we can find wisdom in their parenting according to this American mother. They have books like The Happiest Baby on the Block, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. They have books like My Two Moms, Lessons of Love, Strength, and What Makes a Family. They did not put the words family in quotation marks. I think that that is a crime because obviously the author of that book does not know what God says a family is because God created them and defined them, and that has nothing to do with two moms. They also have titles like One, Two, Three, Magic, Effective Discipline for Children 2 through 12. If you have children ages 2 through 12, you don't need to waste your time here. You can just apply one, two, three magic, and you are good to go. Now, that's Amazon.com, right? What, what more would we expect from a secular retailer? ChristianBook.com has nearly 6,000 titles in their parenting category. They have titles such as this, Not-So-Stupid Parents, Why Your Kids Think You're Weird and How to Prove Otherwise. I know my kids think I'm weird. I don't know that it's my goal to prove them otherwise, but... Anyway, there's a book on that if you need help. Have a new teenager by Friday from mouthy and moody to respectful and responsible in five days. You got two options. You can show up here for nine weeks in a row or you can read that book and you'll have it solved in five days. If you don't have a teenager, they also have a book titled Have a New Kid by Friday. Now, to be fair, I have read none of the titles that I have listed off to you. But what is apparent is that the world is searching for a way to raise their children. They don't know how to do it. And they're publishing 75,000 titles every 10 years trying to find it out. We need to be committed to the belief that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness in his book. That is what he has given us. He has called us to glorify him, and he's given us everything we need in his book. Um, your book goes on to say, the transforming power of biblical principles can only be understood, realized, and practiced with blessing by those who belong to God by faith in his Son. Once again, just a reminder that if you are not in Christ, then you will have a challenge applying these principles because they will look like foolishness to you. 1 Corinthians 1 says that the Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so you're going to look at the Word of God and you're going to look at the biblical principles therein and you're going to be like, well, this is just ridiculous. This is silliness. This is foolishness. Why would I want to parent this way? And apart from Christ, you're going to have trouble reconciling yourself to that reality. 1 Corinthians 2.14 was listed in your notes. It says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, and he cannot understand him because they are spiritually appraised. That means that first and foremost, if we go back to last week's lesson, our priority is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only to know him 
but to love him, to serve him, and to submit to his word, because that's the way that we are going to be the parents that God has called us to be. That very last sentence on, verse, uh, on page 7, it says, Observance of all the principles we are learning will produce the most effective results when they are practiced in a home that follows God's design for the family. Um, at the top of page 8, it reminds us, something we talked about last week a little bit, about the roles that God has given to the family, those of husband and father, those of wife and mother. And there's some verses there we're not going to go into deeply today because we talked about it a little bit last week. But just recognizing that in our homes that God has designed our families according to his perfect design and he has set perfect roles up so that he might accomplish his purposes. So we have to trust his roles. We have to trust what he has designed for us. And then we have to go on and trust the commands that he has given to us. All the while understanding that our ultimate purpose as a believer is to glorify God. 2 Corinthians 5.9, if you have a Bible... Uh, you can turn there, I'll just read it briefly. Second Corinthians 5, 9 just reminds us again of our ultimate purpose. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And then verse 10 says, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You see, we have as our goal, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That is our goal as individuals, and that is our goal as parents. So you see, um, once again, on page 8, the goal of parenting is this. It's in big, bold font right in the middle of page 8. It says, to be a faithful instrument in God's hands for actively bringing up my child according to biblical principles. To be a faithful instrument in God's hands for actively bringing up my child according to biblical principles. We're going to talk about some of these different words, but they're all chosen intentionally for a moment. The first one is faithful. Most of us know that parenting children is easy. You get lots of sleep. You're bored most of the day. Like, no one's interrupting you. It's awesome. Like, none of those things are true. Being a parent is hard. By the way, I actually love the stage that we're at right now. Our, our kids are like ages 8 through 16. We can leave the house, and most of the time when we come back, they're all still alive. Like some of you are in that throes of parenting that is, I'm gonna, not going to lie to you, my least favorite, when like they're all small and they're all incompetent, and they spill stuff, and they mess up stuff. They, they can't bathe themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't, and it's hard, and it's wearying, and they wake up in the middle of the night, and they wake up you in the middle of the night. Parenting is hard. We need to be faithful. We need to be a faithful instrument in God's hands. So faithful. We have to be faithful at it day in and day out. We have to be committed to being a faithful parent. Um, instrument. We're an instrument in God's hands. Ultimately, remember, we are trying to point our children back to the Father, back to Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate goal, which means we are God's instruments to steward our children for his glory. We are not using them for our own purposes. We're not using them so that we can vicariously live through them. We can make them to be the athlete that we wish that we were or the academic or the successful career person that we had hoped to be. Our goal is not necessarily just to put them in a better state in life than we were, although that's not an unreasonable or irrational goal. Our goal is to point them to Jesus Christ. We are an instrument in God's hands to push our children back to Christ, back to the Father. It says, for actively bringing up my child. We have to be active in it. We're going to talk about that more in just a moment. Bringing up my child according to biblical principles. The goal of parenting, to be a faithful instrument in God's hands for actively bringing up my child according to biblical principles. It's 
there. It should have been there a minute ago if I had clicked the button. Um, but to understand uh, the goal of parenting, first off, we have to understand what is God's view of man. God's view of man. We have to understand where our children are starting to understand where we are trying to send them, right? And to understand that, we have to understand that from God's perspective. What is God's view of man? And God's view of man, number one in your book, is that man is not inherently good. By the way, of those 75,000 titles that are published every decade on parenting, my guess is somewhere north of like 80 to 90% of them are going to claim something about your child's inherent goodness or innate goodness. They have some ability in and of themselves, and your job as a parent is just to like maybe get out of the way or maybe help them unlock it. You know, they, they just can't find the key. It's behind the dress. I don't know. But like they're going to claim that there's some sort of inherent goodness in your child. The Word of God says man is not inherently good. You see, natural man's goal is to feel good about himself and thus function better. You see that in your notes on page 8. They start by feeling good about themselves and all they're trying to do is feel better about it. But that is not an accurate view of themselves the way God has declared it in his word. You see, there's common secular psychologists like Freud will say this, man is an instinctual animal with two major instincts, that of love and hate. And it is our job as parents not to warp their personality by opposing the child's basic drives. See, we don't oppose our children. That would be wrong. We just, you know, somehow like stand on the side and we kind of corral them, we guide them, we shape them, and we just kind of let them run. The motor's already running. All we're trying to do is steer it. Secular psychology, Skinner, Psychologist Skinner says this, man is born a blank slate. Environment programs this blank slate. Parents need only to manipulate the environment and thus condition the child. Right, like your children are a blank slate. They are shaped by their environment. The village raises them or whatever have you. And we just need to let that happen. And that is just the natural order. Secular psychology Psychologist Codgers says this, he says, the child is self-motivated because of inherent goodness. If we give the child freedom to get in touch with his feelings and become self-actualized, he will blossom. First off, I don't even understand all those words, but I understand the part of it's like, we're going to just let him blossom. We're just going to let him figure it out. Colossians 2.8, if you have your Bibles, turn here, Colossians 2.8. Colossians 2.8-10. This is what the Word of God says about those topics. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. That's what those secular psychologists are teaching. They've got this this empty deception, this philosophy according to the tradition of men. They've made it up themselves, not, not going back to what creator God says about his creation. They've made up their own philosophy here, and it's according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. I don't know about having your children blossom, but I know this, Christ has said, in him you can be made complete. And so we point our children to Christ. And just like you were talking earlier, be independent. My goal in life, just so we're clear, you may have different goals than me. This, I can't find this goal written on the page of the scripture. But my goal in life is to get my children to a certain age and just, just kick them out there. Not because I'm trying to harm them, not because I'm trying to ruin them, but hopefully in God's grace 
through the years that he has given them to me, that I would be a faithful steward, that Angela would be a faithful steward together, that we would equip them, that they would be complete in Christ so that they could go out into a world to live for him, to glorify him, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone who has need of it. And they would do that not because they're incompetent or not independent or all these other goals that we've talked about, but they, all of those things combined first and foremost driven by a desire for the glory of God. But the only way that we get there is first we reject the philosophy of the world. We reject the philosophy of the world and we understand what God's word says is that man is not inherently good. By the way, there's a lot of recommended readings in this, uh, this material. I haven't read all of them. I've actually read this one on, on page 8 by Jay Adams. Um, I would recommend it to you. We see that man is not inherently good. We have to understand that to raise our children. We also have to understand the other part of that, which is man, and it's inherently evil. And that seems like obvious coming from statement number one, but I think it has to be stated because it actually claims they're not a blank slate. Remember, like our secular psychologist told us, they're not coming out neutral. They're actually coming out inherently evil. We see the Bible gives clear evidence. Romans 3, 10 and 11 reminds us that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks for God, right? That is our nature, um, and then we see uh, also that sin affects the whole human being. It talks about sin affects the will, it affects the mind, it affects the affections and emotions, and it affects our outward speech and behavior. And you know this, right? Especially for those of you that have children. They have emotions. Do any of your children have emotions? Just by way of hands. Yes. I have children with emotions. Sometimes they cry at me. Sometimes they yell at me. Sometimes they're angry, sometimes they're sad, sometimes they have so many emotions. Um, I actually had my child say one to me one time, um, I just have all these emotions and, and I don't know what they are, Dad. And I'm like, well, if you don't, then I'm struggling over here, right? But sometimes we think about those emotions and we think that they're neutral. We think that they're just emotions, they're just responses. But oftentimes, what are our emotions saying? Well, I'm sad because I did not get what I wanted. My selfish carnal self said, my sibling got two cookies and I got one and I'm going to cry about it. Or I'm angry because someone spoke to me in a way that I didn't think was okay. Or one of my friends gets to do this at their house and I don't get to do this in our house. You, mom and dad, you guys are unreasonable. You're irrational. You guys are like demons from the gates of hell. And like, I don't understand why you oppress us poor children so and do not let us watch whatever ridiculous show it is that that other friend watches, right? Like, but those emotions, well, sometimes we, we're, if we're not careful, we can just think, oh, they're just emotions or whatever. But if we recognize that they are emotions that are brought out of a children that are apart from God and need to be reconciled to God, it changes the way that we parent, right? We're not just trying to um, put some sort of salve on the situation and make it all okay. We're trying to say you have an emotion that is reflecting a heart that is not content in Christ right now, that is not at peace with God right now, and my job is to point you back to him. Outward speech and behavior. Um, uh, in your notes on page 9, there's verses like Mark seven twenty one, Galatians 5, and, and James 3 that remind us of how our speech and behavior um, happens. You know, I have a child... Um, I have five children, but I have, I have one child in particular that I have to remind there's a verse... 
where Christ says that the mouth brings out of that which fills the heart. And I have to look at my child sometimes and say, I don't know what's going on in your heart right now, but I know what's coming out of your mouth. And so if out of your mouth is coming angry, vengeful words, then God's word tells me that you've got angry, vengeful thoughts in your heart right now. Can we talk about that? How do we pray about that? How do we process that, right? So it's so important that as we see these behaviors, we recognize that sin permeates the whole human being. It permeates every aspect of it. So even our emotions deceive us. This is what um, the Bible calls uh, total depravity. They have the words in your notes there for those that want to be good theologians, total depravity. By the way, total depravity does not mean um, that all of our children are as evil as they could be. It just means that all of our children are, are evil to their core and they have the capacity uh, for it. They're, not, they're utterly unable to rid themselves of the guilt of sin and establish an eternal relationship with God apart from God acting on their behalf. That's what that means. Um, Luckily, we praise God that our children are not as evil as they possibly could be. That is God's common grace to all of us, and we're thankful for that. Um, but that is, um, so we have to first understand what is God's view of our children. Well, by, by the way, let's, let's start back up for just a moment. That's God's view of us before Christ, right? We are, we are not inherently good. We are inherently evil. We need Christ first to redeem us so that we can, by his power and strength, then pass that on to our children. By the way, this starts from a very young age. Um, Psalm 51 uh, 5 uh, reminds us, um, David reminds us that it was in sin uh, that conception had. Uh, sorry, I'm going to have to look it up. I thought I had it in my notes. Psalm 51 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Not that conception was sin in and of itself, but from that very moment, uh, sin was a part of his nature. So that then, as he grew and as he developed in the womb, he was developing the physical and mental capacities capable of fulfilling the sinful intentions of his heart. So from the very beginning, he had that sinful nature, and as he progressed in his growth, that was going to be the outcome. See, in your notes it says, the fact that a child at times can think, speak, or act in a way which is relatively good does not disprove his total depravity. That is God's common grace towards us. That, and sometimes we actually act toward people in a rational manner. Most of the time it's driven by our own sinful tendencies to avoid conflict or to gain some advantage. But it is God's common grace to us that we do not all act as sinfully as we could act. We have to recognize, though, that every child is wholly fallen and hence wholly in need of redemption, right? That's what we're trying to get to here is every single one of your children and mine is wholly in need of redemption. And that is from birth, from conception, as we just read in Psalm 51. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can describe this. My, one of my brothers, I have several, one of them likes to call his children bundles of depravity, right? Um, just reminds himself from the beginning, this is what we're starting with. This is our starting point. Um, I like to say uh, that all of your children are hostile aliens. And I don't know if he has a verse for his. I actually have a verse for mine. And it's this. It's Colossians 1.21. I put it in my notes here. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. 
Before Christ, you were alienated and hostile in mind. You and I and our children before Christ are hostile aliens. That is our description. Now, it goes on in verse 22 of Colossians 1, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Thank God that we have a savior who is in the business of taking hostile aliens and making them citizens of his beloved son's kingdom. That is what he is in the business of doing. But we need to understand that. And the reason that that's important is because we're going to go on, as we talk about discipline and instruction later, the most important thing that we have to remember is that our goal is to... I think a lot of times in parenting, we think the conflict is between us and our children. But really, the conflict is between our children created beings and their creator whom they are walking in rebellion against. And that distinction is important because if the conflict is just between me and my child, then I'm trying to reconcile them to something of my own making, some idol of my own fashioning. I have fashioned an idol and it is successful and it is academic and it is smart and it is athletic. And if they meet that idol, then we're good. But if there's conflict, if they don't respect me, if they don't do the things that I want, then there is conflict. But if we remember that our children, our goal, our primary goal is to raise them according to the principles of God's word, to point them to Christ, then the conflict is between them and God. And then our goal as disciples and stewards of the gifts of the children that God has given us is to take that child and say, child, I love you. Daughter, son, I love you. Right now there is conflict between you and God. There is this chasm. There is this breach. You are not at peace with him. You are walking in rebellion to him. How can I help you point you to Christ? Because he has created you for his glory. He has created you in his image and you are not walking according to the image that he has created you in. Your mom and dad love you too much to watch you walk this way. How can we help you be reconciled to Christ through Christ, through the power of his word, through his spirit? Such a different relationship we have with our children, right? It's not about me. It's not about what Ben wants out of life or what Ben wants out of his children. It's about how we reconcile them back to their creator. And that's why um, in your notes it says, our children must be shown from scripture his sinful condition and its horrible effects in time and eternity. That no external works or behavior can earn him salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. We need to show our children as we reveal to them through our parenting, through our discipline, through our instruction that they are sinners in need of a Savior. They have to call out to Him. Right? We're going to talk about that more later, but when, we, when we're talking about our children in the moment, what does it mean to say, I know that you're struggling right now. And let me tell you what, the only thing that can save you right now is Jesus. He's the only one that can give you the strength to walk in obedience because it's hard. And you know what? You've seen dad. And sometimes dad struggles and it's hard. And when dad is broken because of his sin, he cries out to Jesus. I need you to cry out to Jesus. Our children must be taught to trust in Jesus Christ as their own Savior and Lord. And obviously there's plenty of passages that allude to that in your notes. We're not going to go through all of them right now. That's at the end of page 9 for those that are following along. I'm trying to reorient myself. We're at, the, we're at the top of page 10 now. Top of page 10. So we need to point our children to trust in Jesus Christ as their own Savior and Lord. Uh, page 10 reminds us that um, Scripture teaches 
that the heart is the control center of life. We see this in Genesis, James, Proverbs, other places. You know, James says that uh, sin uh, is conceived in our hearts when our own lusts uh, boil up and they're not satisfied and it brings forth sin and it leads to death. We see that in James chapter 1. So once again, a reminder, like the example we talked about earlier, we talk about sin affects our whole being, it affects our emotions, our mind, our will, our outward behavior, but ultimately our goal is to get back to our children's hearts, to remind them that fundamentally this isn't just some expression, this isn't some response to the moment or to an environmental situation, this is a problem of the heart. And so as parents, it's going to be important that we, we, we know scripture and we're able to orient our children back, like in the example of my child earlier, when I'm like, hey, I can hear what's coming out of your mouth, but what scripture tells me is that what's coming out of your mouth tells me something's going on in your heart. So let's talk about that, because from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and so I want to know what's going on in your heart. I heard what you said. Tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what's going on there. We need to attack it there. There's some emotion, or there's some, not emotion, there's some desire, some lust, some goal that is not being met, and you're responding to that with anger. What does that look like, and how do we treat that uh, with Holy Scripture? How do we understand how we can reorient you back to Holy Scripture? Um, So the issue in parenting is primarily internal, dealing with the child's heart, not only his behavior. And I think especially in the Christian church, sometimes it is easy. Someone mentioned earlier, we want our kids to behave well. And what you, you didn't finish the sentence, whoever you were, I forget who said it, but you meant to say in front of others, because that's really what we want. We all want our children to behave well in front of others, right? Um, In fact, someone in our small group last week was talking about time to get our church faces on or something, right? And like, that's our goal sometimes is we want our children to behave well and we want to behave well in front of others. And our children's behavior, having a good behavior is not a bad thing, but that is an outcome of us teaching our children's hearts. It is not the primary goal. We teach our children's hearts and out from that flows their behavior. Um, following on, on verse um, uh, chapter or page 10, it says, parenting therefore must focus on Christ. We already mentioned this a few times. It is only in Christ that the child who has experienced conviction of sin may find hope, forgiveness, salvation, and power to live. If you've ever talked with a child that ha- feels like they are hopeless, they don't understand how to respond to the situation at school. They don't understand how to deal with a sibling that just keeps annoying them. They don't understand how to respond to a parent that seems unreasonable. They feel like they have lost hope. You remind them that in Christ they can have hope, forgiveness, salvation, and power to live in a manner which is pleasing to God. Because it is only after regeneration that the indwelling spirit can shape the child and manifest spiritual virtue and the genuine fruit of the spirit. We see that in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The, the great joy of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, especially if you read even just the last three verses, 8, 9, and 10, is that there's this progression from God has saved you solely by his grace through faith in verse 8 to verse 10, but he has redeemed you to good works. See, God is a good God. He doesn't redeem anyone and leave you as you are. That would be a foolish God. Like, what kind of God would do that? What kind of God would be like, hey, like, I would like to save you so that you can stay in your sin. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, I saved you so that you could walk in a manner worthy of me. That is the good God that we have, and that is what he will do in the lives of our children as well. But let me pause for just a moment and ask a question. What is a way in which we as parents can lead our children away from Christ in our parenting? We've just said we need to lead them to Christ. What are ways that we can either intentionally or unintentionally lead them away from Christ? By um, doing what you said not to do and acting like 
need to be reconciled to us and hmm. not God, or they offended us, so therefore they're getting in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we point them away from Christ, but we don't talk about Christ. We, we might even try and implement biblical principles in our home, but it's all about us. Are they being reconciled to us? Are they doing what we have asked? Are they doing what, you know, and obviously that's critical, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. We'll talk about that later, but yeah, it's ultimately about Christ. What else? What are other ways that we can lead them away from Christ, intentionally or unintentionally? Being hypocritical. Like asking them, like the, 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 old, the old parenting adage, what, do as I say, not as I do, you know. Expecting more from them than we expect of ourselves. Man, wow, thanks for that. I never do that. <clears throat> I'm going to go repent right now. No, that's, it's easy, right? Um, by the way, the other thing I was going to, uh, Travis, to your, I think being hypocritical is an easy one, and we're all going to fall into that trap. But expecting them to have to confess and ask for forgiveness, but we never doing the same. And that kind of goes back to your comment, expecting something of them that we wouldn't expect of ourselves. And there's times I've had to go to one child in particular and tell them things that came out of dad's mouth reflected the things that were in his heart. And that was sin, and I need you to forgive me. I heard a guy who asked, And when I discipline out of anger, I'm being disciplined to my loving Heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah we, we discipline out of love and obedience to our Father, right? And we'll talk about that later. Hebrews 12 and other places, we're trying to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness, Hebrews 12 says. I tell you what, sometimes we get done with our discipline and there is no peaceful fruit of righteousness going on even in our own hearts as parents, let alone our children's hearts. Yeah, not disciplining in anger. That's huge. What verse is that? Uh, Hebrews 12. I want to say it's somewhere between 8 and 10, but I'm not exactly sure. You have to fact check me there. Actually, I, I quote that to my children, I, and when I'm disciplining them, I'm saying, we are here because right now you are not at peace with God. Not with dad, because dad's irrelevant in this moment, but you are not at peace with God in your behavior and your actions. God has said, I have to discipline you because he says fatherly discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You need to be reconciled to a place of peace with God that yields righteousness because right now what you're doing is wickedness. Just remembering that as you're going to the act of discipline will change your perspective. It will change your goal. It will change what you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to do. I'm convinced I am like infinitely behind on time, just so we're clear. God's view of man. First off, we have to understand that man is not inherently good and that man is inherently evil so that we can, because if we think that, once again, if we think that our children are good, then we're just going to like let them just run off and do their own thing. But if they're inherently evil as we are ourselves before Christ, then we have a different tack. We're going to talk about God's direction to parents. God's direction to parents. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Uh, well, Ephesians 6, 4 is in your notes. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, 
Um, but we just talked about that in discipline. Oh, actually, this is, I'm sorry, provoking your children to anger. Talked about not being angry ourselves in discipline. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The discipline and instruction of the Lord. And we're going to see in God's directions, the parents, first off, the essence of God's directions, the essence of God's directions. We see first in Ephesians 6, 4, it says we have the key phrase, bring them up. This term um, really means to tenderly care for your children. It means to bring them up, uh, to bring them up to maturity, to bring them up to maturity. I think about, um, you know, our, our goal is, once again, hopefully not to have children that, you know, are still babes and incapable of leaving the nest at some point in their lives. Colossians 1.28 says this. It says, We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. If you want to think about a verse for your parenting, think about that one. It's not a very parenting verse, but the goal is that we admonish every man, every child. We proclaim Christ admonishing every child and teaching every child with all wisdom so that we may present every child complete in Christ. If our goal is to bring them up to maturity, that should be our goal, to show them Christ so that we could bring them up to maturity. And this bringing them up has this idea of uh, providing what they need to grow into maturity. Now, there's a couple of examples here. He talks about this is an active voice. You parents bring them up. It is not a passive voice, which is like you children be brought up, or a middle voice, children bring yourselves up. Right? That, that passive voice, you children be brought up, is a lot of what secular parenting is today. Is like you're just going to be brought up inside the environment that you're in. Inside whatever place that you put them, that's going to be how you're going to be brought up. The passive, the middle voice, children bring yourselves up. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to sound inflammatory, and I apologize. But unless your three-year-old is a nutritionist, you get to decide what they eat, not them. Unless your five-year-old is a meteorologist, you get to decide whether they get to wear a coat, not them. Now, that may sound ridiculous because modern parenting psychology says, no, 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 no. You need to let them decide. And I will tell you, you do not bring your child up by letting a two-year-old and a three-year-old make ridiculous decisions. And you say, like, but... They're, not, they're just trying to blossom. They're naturally good, right? We have to bring them up. We have to show them wisdom in every area. Now, obviously, how you do that in your home and with your children, how much you let them choose and how much you choose for them. Do you let them choose which color of coat? I don't know, or whether they wear a coat today or swap it out for a sweater. I don't care. And I'm not trying to like go you know, dogmatic on any of that. What I'm trying to say is this, is that it is easy in very simple ways to abdicate our role as teaching and instructing our children and instead saying, we're letting them blossom, we're letting them choose, we're letting them be individuals. And instead of saying, what does wisdom look like in this situation? Wisdom says, I open the window, I see rain, I'm going to grab a jacket because dad doesn't like being wet. I know you're not smart enough to know that being wet and cold is sad, so I'm going to help you. Right? We don't let our children bring themselves up. We, we help them. We nurture them through wisdom, right? What are some other ways that we can be passive in our parenting? How do we manifest passivity in our parenting? Ooh, man, letting them choose their own friends. Wow. <laughs> that is bold. You really don't let your kid, no. No, seriously, right? 
We know what scripture says about who we hang around with and how that can influence our behavior. We take the word of God and we apply that to them. Hey, I bet you don't know that scripture says that the people that you hang around with can corrupt your morals before God. Have you thought about why you're hanging around with so-and-so? Ooh, man, that's bold. I love it. What else? Other ways that we're passive parents. But by the way, the way that that starts is having a conversation with your children about why they hang out with who they hang out with. You know, I've got kids right now that are to the age where they actually think that they are starting to be attracted to other children. And so young men and young women, they, they all look like children to me. But, but, but one of the things that we do is we say, well, what attracts you to that individual? By the way, I think God has given us attraction, which is good, is because otherwise we'd all be single because relationships are hard. So we know that God has given us attraction, but what attracts you to that individual? What, why do you hang out with those friends? Let's talk about that. Let's have a conversation about that. Are they noble things or are they godly things or are they selfish, carnal things? Any other ways that we can be passive as parents? Not monitoring things. Yeah, we, we live in a world where our children have more access to they've in, in all, of, all of known history, right? Um, modern psychology would say, oh my goodness, you're invading your child's privacy. Um, once again, I'm thankful for the godly wife that um, God has given me because our, our oldest just got one of those smart devices that everyone carries around and like stares at instead of staring at humans. Um, but we set it up in such a way that there's a lot of access. And, and Angela's perspective is fantastic. She said, William, this is how you're going to be a great husband one day because your dad shares everything with me. Now, to be fair, we could have just demanded, like, we're going to share it anyway because it's ours and we own it and whatever. But if our goal is actually to prepare him to be a godly husband and father and adult, then we've changed his mind because he said, we're actually, like, we're, we're not invading your privacy, although I have that right to, I think, as a father. I'm actually preparing you to be accountable to your spouse, to be accountable to another brother in Christ, to be accountable to whatever. Once again, if we're pointing it back to Christ, it changes the whole dynamic. Any, any other ways that we're passive as parents? At some point, that can flip. Can we shelter them from everything so that we avoid difficult conversations about mm. how to navigate mm. things that may, they may encounter? Mm. Mm. Uh, because at some point, right? You're, yeah. They're going to be independent and you hope that they've encountered some of these difficult things. Yeah. That you've worked with them. Yeah, there, there, there's a risk that we cloister and we protect our child. Remember, if our goal is to present them complete in Christ and be ready to, like, kick them out the door, you know, I've actually, uh, you know, Angela and I have talked about this. Is like, my goal is that they encounter a lot of really hard situations while they're young while they're still at an age, not because I'm like trying to introduce them to them, but like when they're still at an age where they actually listen to mom and dad and they have conversations with mom and dad and they, they want, and I, I want to be able to prepare them because what they're going to face once they get out there as an adult is going to be even greater. And if they have seen none of this, then man, they're, they're in for a world of hurt. And so I think we actually, we do our kids damage when we, we cloister them or we say, you know, one of the phrases I remember even from my childhood, I have a godly father, but there was one time I asked him a question and it was probably the wrong question at the wrong time. He said, well, we're not going to talk about that right now. And what he didn't know for years and years and years is I interpreted that as if I want answers to things, I got to go to somebody else. And I tell you what, if I'd have told my dad that that moment, it would have broke his heart. 
I still love my dad. He's still one of my greatest confidants and counselors. But as parents, we need to be ready to have those conversations with our kids. We need to be ready to engage them, to disciple them for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, the essence of God's directions. Uh, I'm going to have to put my speed boots on here. All right, we're not going to be passive in our parenting. 11. By the way, you can see this. It's easy sometimes that we, we think... Um, because of success in one area of life that somehow immediately translates to others. There's a great example in here of David, you know, who was, you know, by Scripture's own testimony, a man after God's own heart, and he demonstrated that in many ways. But there were some areas in which he was probably not uh, the parent uh, that he should have been. There's, you know, I always, when I take details like these, I always take them with a grain of salt because Scripture isn't explicit in how all of these things happen the way that they happen, but we do know that they happen. And so they're an anecdote for us and a warning for us that David, even as a man after God's own heart, had turmoil in his family. And there's probably uh, a large aspect of that that could have been taken to whether he was the most, quote-unquote, active father that he should have been. Uh, there's Second Samuel talking about Amnon and uh, all the consequences there, Absalom and uh, Adonijah. Um, he also had way more kids than I did, so that might have been a challenge to track them all down all the time, which is also the result of another um, sin that was common in those days. Um, so we shouldn't be passive. Um, we must actively pursue the, t- pursue the task of bringing up our children, particularly dad. This is on uh, ch- uh, page 12. Um, and I think, you know, God in his wisdom knew that fathers would need more encouragement. They would need extra encouragement in this area. And so he gives it specifically to that. Why? I think ta- dads tend sometimes to neglect this duty. We think that it is just mom's job at times. We tend to be timid in this area. We think, well, mom spends more time with him than I do. Maybe she's, she's wiser than I am. She has that maternal instinct built in. And sometimes we abdicate our role as fathers. And so God reminds us that we need to be responsible here. Dads are directly accountable to God because of his structure of headship. 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 3, we don't have time to go there. But God has created order um, in the world that he has created. He's done that through the creation of nations. He's done that through the creation of families. He's done that through the creation of all these things. And in those, there are functional roles that we take. And so uh, dads have that functional role of headship, of leadership in the home. So we are ultimately accountable for our children, even if even if our wives um, do a lot of the, the, the ministering to our children, as many of them do. We also tend to think that our work is over when we arrive at home, especially for a father that works outside the home. Um, we come home and we're like, man, I've had a hard day. Well, I guarantee you, your wife had a hard day too. Um, and I tell you what, uh, COVID and working from home, I got to see some of that firsthand. Maybe some of you got to see that firsthand. I thought, man, the workplace is a lot quieter than this house is. It is crazy. There's way more yelling here than there was at work. Wow, it's great. You know, um, Fathers, we need that encouragement. We need that encouragement um, uh, to be faithful. So we need to be active. We need to bring them up. By the way, this bringing them up is in the present tense. It's ongoing. It's continuous. Uh, we talked about that earlier. We need to be faithful instruments. So little by little, little parents are either striving to be faithful instruments in God's hands or they're neglecting this responsibility through passivity. So we do not get to abdicate this role. By the way, we don't get to abdicate it to pastors or to youth leaders or to any other place either. I think we, Chris mentioned this last week. All of those things are good and, and, and well, and they are God's gift to us that we have all of those places. There's times I've actually had to, I've challenged one of my children um, that was thinking about baptism. I'm like, hey, have you asked your your youth leader that you trust have, when they got baptized and, and what made them do it. And so what a blessing those things are, but they don't allow us to abdicate our roles as parenting, uh, as parents. 
we are ultimately um, accountable to God. So we have the essence of parenting, essence of God's directions. Then we have the execution of God's direction. We're going to kind of go through this quickly because we're going to see this more in future, um, in future sections. But it really manifests itself in two ways. And the first of that is... I don't know how to do PowerPoint slides. I, I learned this morning. The execution of God's direction is through discipline. First is through discipline. And we saw that earlier in uh, Ephesians 6.4. We raised them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline, this word has the idea of training. We're training our children. We see that in verse 13. And all of you know this because you've either had a personal trainer, you've seen somebody go to a personal trainer, you've engaged in a sports activity or a musical activity or an academic activity. You know what training is. And yet somehow secular psychology has said the child will just blossom. They don't need training. They're just going to blossom. But no, God's word says that we need to train our children. And we're going to use a lot of different methods to do that. And it is that training that establishes a framework upon which good habits of wise living can be built. We were just going through Proverbs. Remember in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 4, it says that we need to give to the naive prudence, right? There is different stages of life and different ages of our children. And when they're really young, we need to say, hey, you know what nutrition is? It's not always ice cream, even though dad likes ice cream. We're going to have vegetables today. And as they get older, it's like, hey, we're going to teach you, you know what prudence is, what wisdom is. It's how to choose friends. It's how to identify when those friends are leading us to Christ or away from Christ. It's how to engage in all those activities. But we do that through training. We train them in wise living. Children, uh, Parents are to bring them up, to train them how to live in a prudent manner. At the bottom of verse 13, it says this. It says, discipline is not only for the purpose of shaping a child's behavior. It is also a means by which a parent points a child to his need for Christ. When a child fails to live up to the standards which he is taught, it is an opportunity to explain his need for a Savior. We talked about that a little bit earlier, so we're not going to recap that again. But how important it is that in, even in our discipline, it is easy to think of our discipline as like a quick response to solve a problem, which is chaos in the house right now. It's too loud. I'm going to make the, the house quieter through discipline. Things are going chaotic. I'm going to make them orderly through discipline. Discipline is an opportunity to point our children back to Christ. And so part of tra training is correction. Um, on verse 14, it says correction involves the use of the rod, but is not limited to it. Um, we're going to talk about that more later, but we have to understand that this is what God's word has declared. Um, then the sentence right after it says, though many parents avoid this part of the responsibility, they must at times oppose their children. And that, and that word is chosen intentionally, oppose their children. Because see, if your child came to you and they said, dad, I'm struggling with this homework. It says two plus two equals four, but I actually think two plus two equals five. How many of you would be like, I'm letting them blossom right now. No, you would oppose them. You're like, you have the wrong answer. It's never going to work out. If you budget that way, you will never pay your mortgage. You will never buy a car. You will get fired from your job. But sometimes when it comes to our children, we struggle to oppose them. We struggle to say, what you are doing is not right. God's word has declared that that is not what obedience looks like. That is not the way that we have words come out of our mouth. That is not the way that we act towards our siblings or towards our anywhere else. Discipline, by nature of it, is a form of correction. We are, we are attacking our children straight on and saying, you are sinning, you are disobeying Christ, 
and my job is to correct you and to point you back to Christ. Later on on that same uh, page, it says, to be a biblical parent, to do it God's way, we must be willing to trust God's word and be obedient in this area. It's really hard. It takes work. By the way, especially discipline. I want to just reiterate something I said earlier. Uh, If you're going to change the way that you discipline your children, talk about that. That's something you really got to talk about as husband and wife. That can be disastrous because your children will know it. They will know if one parent thinks that this discipline is okay and one doesn't. Be unified in that and make sure that you approach that uh, in, uh, in the unity of the spirit. Pray about it, talk about it. Also, especially if your kids are older, be honest with them. Be like, hey, you know what, mom and dad, this is, we have not been doing what we think we need to do and we've learned from studying God's word and from talking to, to godly, other godly parents that you know, there's things that we're, we're gonna need to change and you know, these are things that we used to allow before and you know, it's just, that was wrong for us as parents to allow you to walk in disobedience and not to discipline you for it. God's word has said that if I love you, I will discipline you to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So I just want you to know that. Um, this is something that mom and dad had to confess and repent of. And so we're changing because we want to be more like Christ and we want you to be more like Christ. Man, that's a very different situation from, you know, I mean, think about that. If you showed up for work every day, five minutes late, five minutes late, five minutes late, five minutes late, you walk in on Friday, you're fired, gone. Sometimes we do that as parents and we don't even know it. We're just like, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. Hammer of wrath, right? Dad's had enough. Our job is to correct. If we have that view that our job is to correct and to point our children back to Christ, it's going to shape even our discipline. We don't get to, we don't get to step back from it. We don't get to abdicate our role as disciplinarians and instructors of our children, but we do so with the right motive because of our fear of the Lord. Um, and then secondly, instruction. Instruction. Unlike the term discipline, this, this word is more specific. It carries the idea of putting it into the mind, right? Into the mind. I think one of the actual risks of, I would say, modern evangelical Christian parenting is that we overemphasize on discipline sometimes and not enough on instruction because discipline yields that outward behavior that then gives us church faces on our kids when they come in on Sunday. And maybe even it gives us a quieter home. But if we're faithful, we've got to be faithful to Christ in instructing our children. You know, I... um just to confess real quick and then we'll pray and be done. I had this challenge recently with one of my children. They were upset on a, on a Saturday and the problem I thought was that they were being rebellious. And so I went, you know, hammer of wrath, dad style, like you're rebellious, you're not doing your stuff, you weren't doing your school, whatever. And what became apparent very quickly is that my child needed instruction. They didn't know how to manage their time. They were juggling school and athletics and all these things. And I was going in with a hammer and they needed someone to instruct them to be like, hey, you've got a lot of stuff going on. How can I help you manage your time to the glory of God? How can I help you choose what are your priorities to the glory of God? And so we have to balance both the discipline and instruction. You see, because our discipline and instruction, lastly on that last page on 15, are not merely for the purpose of conforming our children to certain external standards of behavior. They're for pointing them back to Christ and his goodness. Any other questions, thoughts, comments on the parent's goal as both 
understanding who our children are in res- with respect to God's view of them and what we should be doing as our primary roles of um, helping them through discipline and instruction. Any questions, thoughts from the homework this past week? Um, can you give an, an example where your child will have offended a person that wasn't a violation of scripture? No, probably not. There's your answer. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's ultimately our goal, right? Like, what, there's um, and and the cool thing is if you find a couple of passages of scripture, um, sometimes it's it's helpful and just use those because you know your own children, right? And so you know if you're dealing with an issue of the mouth, first off, you would if you had a child that was appropriate age, you would help them memorize that verse, but you would memorize it yourself so that when you're in the moment, you're bringing it back to mind because the word of God is living and active. And Hebrews four twelve says it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You and I can't do that. I don't have that ability, but the word of God can. I believe it is powerful to do so because it claims it is. And so we would say like, hey, you know what? Um, the, the word of God says that, you know, our speech should be for building up for the edification of the other person. Your speech was tearing that person down. It was slandering them. Here's, the Bible says that slander is not okay. Like, you are in violation. Because here's the thing is, if you think the goal is to reconcile them to that individual, they may be reconciled to that individual and never be reconciled to Christ. If our goal is to reconcile them to Christ, then, and that's why like the whole focus of today is like, what is our goal? Our goal is to point them back to Christ, knowing that they have this need. Um, so I would say yes. Like now, to be fair, like we manifest that in real life by going back to that person. Like that's what that looks like. And so you can't say, I, I would argue that they can't say, I have been reconciled to God, but not to that person, right? Remember, Jesus says, hey, if there's something between you and a brother, and you're about to go into my house of worship, drop the offering go be reconciled, come back, right? Because we don't get to claim that somehow we've been reconciled to God when we haven't dealt with that, that issue, right? So the answer is yes and, but our primary is always our disobedience to Christ, right? Is that, is that helpful? Yes. So I have... Three boys and two girls, and yes, they are different, um, but, but they're all different. I, I like to say, like, and, and I love you out there if you have one child, but once you have two children, you're like, oh my goodness, like, the environment doesn't shape them because I have two children in the same environment, and they are vastly different because God has made them different. And so I think, um, I think that that's a reality. I think, um, I think that is why it is so helpful that God has given us, you know, when I look back at Genesis 1, God gave Eve to Adam to help him before there was sin. Even without sin, the guy still needed a little bit of help. Like, I actually, I believe that. To be able to fully accomplish the work that God had given him on this earth. And so God has given us our spouses. And so I think especially that is where we use um, one another to help us in our parenting. Especially if you think that there's a difference between like, hey, man, there's one child that responds better to another. You know, my wife is convinced that there is one child that um, respects me and doesn't respect her. And because of 
things, whatever, right? And so, but how does that influence how we discipline that child and instruct that child and whatever? And is this just a phase of life or is this just because, you know, it's, it's a girl versus a boy, whatever? I don't know. We take the word of God as our basis, but we also have to use wisdom and we have to understand that they're in different spheres of life. We have to understand, I have to have my wife remind me that some of my daughters are becoming young women and that changes their emotions at times. And uh, that surprised me, but I have to have grace for that moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a practical example in how we as parents mm-hmm. discipline them. Mm-hmm. But what if the child's eyes haven't been opened to Christ mm-hmm. or if they're not believers? Mm-hmm. Is there a risk of us antagonizing, antagonizing them against Christ because we're constantly pushing mm-hmm. something that they don't understand because their eyes haven't been mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think you're reminding us First Corinthians two, where it says the natural man cannot understand the spiritual things of God. Now, um, you're absolutely right, and that that reminds me of like uh, those passages where like you know it's like hey, you go to you go to a town, you preach the gospel, they don't listen, you dust your feet and you move on. Now, the cool thing is, is our children, we don't get to dust our feet and move on from our children, right? Like we have our children in front of us, but I think we do have to recognize where they're at, not only in their age. Um, because their age demonstrates that, but also where they're at. And so if they were a child, I wouldn't, antagon- I wouldn't antagonize them, but, um, but I would remind them, I'd be like, hey, you know, this is the standard, and the standard is Christ, because we believe that, you know, Christ has created us, you know, mom and dad believe that, or whatever, however you want to say it. It doesn't have to be a long sermonette each time. It just has to be a reminder. It has every single opportunity as a reminder to point them back to Christ. And then, of course, obviously, if they're in Christ, you know, the conversation is a little bit different, because you say, hey, you know what, you know, you know, you've claimed to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his spirit can empower you to be helpful for that. How can mom and dad also be helpful for you? But I think the biggest thing, and, and I think why, um, I guess the response I would say to that is that, yes, we have to remind them every time, but it's, it's very different. I think the perspective is very different if we're trying to help them be reconciled to Christ versus we're somehow trying to like make them fit a mold of our own making. Because I think both parents, in th- those two kinds of parents can both be saying the same things but in very different motives, right? If I sincerely desire in my heart for them to be reconciled to Christ, then you're right. I'm not going to be like banging it over their head. I'm going to be praying for them. I'm going to be quietly reminding them. I'm going to be encouraging them. I'm going to be alongside them. Um, which is very different than just taking a Bible and beating them with it, right? Discipline shouldn't be the only time you're talking to your children. Yes, I think that's, that's a great point too, is that if we only talk about those things when there's conflict, then obviously, then we've created that antagonism that you're talking about. It's like, oh, well, mom and dad, this is kind of the hypocrite that Tra- Travis was talking about earlier. It's like, oh, it's easy for you to talk about the Bible when I'm not doing what you want, mom and dad. And I think that's why the instruction part is so important because otherwise we have become Christians only when our kids aren't giving us what they want. And I tell you what, we're going to find something else about our own hearts when that moment happens, about what we actually believe about Scripture and what we actually believe about Christ because either Christ permeates every part of my life or I just use him as a tool. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at is if we use Christ as a tool to accomplish our carnal ends, there's going to be some brimstone for that. Yeah. Any other thoughts?
All right, cool. I effectively wagged my tongue for long enough that they're singing in the other room. We should pray because we need the Lord's strength. God, we just thank you for this morning. I thank you for your goodness. Father, I thank you that you have just um, given us everything that we need for life and godliness through your word. And Father, you have given us the counsel of believers. Father, I'm, just so, I'm so thankful for the questions and comments, even this moment, that even that just challenged my heart. And so, Father, I just pray that as we go forth from here, Father, even in my own heart, might I like examine myself and say, when am I using your name as a tool to accomplish Ben's own carnal ends? And yet, when am I using, lifting you up as a loving Savior who created us and wants to call all people to himself, including my children? Father, I just pray that that would be our heart's cry this week. Father, that uh, especially, I, I pray first and foremost that it would reconcile each of us individually to you and to your word. If we are, if we are divergent from what your word has said we should be as parents, that we would reconcile, reconcile ourselves to your word, to the glory of your name. And then next, that we would reconcile ourselves to our spouses, that we would be unified in the way that we go forth from here to raise our children, uh, to love you, to know you, uh, to want to walk with you for for eternity. And we just thank you for your son, first and foremost, that you loved us enough that you sent him, that he would redeem us, that he would transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.